You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. I see a couple of new people here, and I'm really glad that you guys are here. So how you doing, Revolution? That's what I'm talking about. There's actually a guy in the back uh, that comes in the store every day. I'm embarrassing for a minute. His, uh, his name is Mike Reed. He's real handsome, man. Uh, ladies, he's married, though. And, uh, and I, begged him, or I, I begged the Reed family that's here to name their child what I've nicknamed this man because they named their kid Dietrich, and that is Kant. So everyone, Kant Reed is in the back. We call him that every time he comes in the store. I love that guy, and I'm glad you're here, man. Anyway, I usually don't do that. I usually don't like single out anyone individually and embarrass them, um, except for my wife. But anyway, um, so this evening, we are continuing through the book of Acts, through this summer series, um, where we're taking a look at how the early church lived and the things that they did and the things that they did well, uh, the things that they screwed up. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to see the, the things that we should and should not be doing um, and, and should and should not be thinking, um, right action, right thoughts, right hearts, um, that we should have as the people of God, right? as the church, the ones who have been called out, the ones who have been chosen by God to be his representatives here on earth. Um, but, but we're also not just, again, I don't, I don't want to seem legalistic. Like We're not just looking at the things that the church did, um, but we're also trying to take a look at what kind of attitudes that we need to adopt. Right? What kind of hearts that we need to have as God's people. Um, and I think that that's going to happen as we understand how we need to view God. And likewise, how we need to view ourselves. Right? That, that's really what's going to change our attitudes. It's going to change the way that we think. Um, so this evening's passage uh, in Acts 14 is one that we're going to, to see addresses how we view ourselves. Um, and also our motives for doing things. Right? I hate thinking about this. Right? Like, why do I do the things that I do? Um, in, in this text that we're going to look at, it's actually Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. If you're new here, there are blue Bibles in the backs of your pews. Um, take one home, and if there's not one in the pew you're sitting in, let me know, and I'll give you a Bible. Uh, it's our gift to you. Anyway, um, but in Acts 14, in this text, we're, we're seeing one, or seeing a text that there is not an explicit command given to us as believers Right? It's not one of those where like the, the church or Paul or, uh, or, or Jesus himself or anyone says, hey, go do this or hey, stop doing this. We're not looking at a moral command, an explicit command. But again, we're looking at an attitude that we need to uh, adopt in our lives uh, for the rest of our lives, like Brandon said, not just for the next week or so. Um, and, and this is really good for us to consider, um, that the Bible is, is not just a list of moral do's and don'ts. Right? I don't know about any of you guys, but uh, did anyone else grow up in that church where like, that's all the Bible is? It's just a big, thick rule book that nobody reads. Right? Like, at least that's, that's how I grew up thinking about Christianity. Right? That God's just trying to cramp my style, um, which on some level he is because we're wicked sinners and we, we need our style cramped or we will sin rampantly. Um, but, but the Bible is not just a, a moral list of do's and don'ts, but the Word of God instead teaches us an entire worldview. Right? Everything. It affects everything. Not just our actions, but again, our words, our thoughts, everything about us. And, and, it, and it changes us in light of who God is and who we are. Uh, I've said this before, and I'm a firm believer in this. God is all about getting our hearts. Right? He doesn't just want our raw, white-knuckled obedience to listen to what he says and do it. He wants our hearts. Right? If obedience doesn't come from a heart of, I love God for who he is, and I want to see him glorified, then our obedience may on the outside be good, but really like the Pharisees, we're just whitewashed tombs that we look really good on the outside, but there's someone dead on the inside. 
Um, God wants our hearts, and whenever he gets our hearts, he will, conveniently enough, get our outer actions as well. Um, so just a thought, we ought to be continuously uh, praying for heart change in light of the gospel. So that's just a, a freebie for you before we even get into it. Pray that God would change your heart, because you can't do that. Um, just like you can't change what kind of foods taste good to you, you can't change what appeals to you and what doesn't. So God is going to be the one that has to change that in you. Um, so anyways, this evening, we're going to be talking about living for God's glory. Right? Again, like there are many men, namely John Piper, who do this way better than me, but I'm going to take a crack at this. Um, but we're going to be looking at living for God's glory and our need for humility. Um, and I hope that in this sermon we're reminded, one, that we are sinners. <laughs> like we live in a world that everyone tells you, like, you are so good and like people are basically good. And yeah, no, that's not true. Right? We are sinners who are in desperate need of God's mercy. And without his mercy, we're going to perish um, so that's the first thing that I hope that just really connects with us this evening. And secondly, I hope we see the glory of God in the gospel. Right? We see the glory of God in what Jesus Christ has done and in, and in the attitudes that Jesus Christ adopted. Um, you know, because nothing compares to what God has done. All right? Whenever I say the glory of God, if nothing compares to him and what he's done, then that renders him with the only legitimate claim to praise and glory. Right? And that's what I mean whenever I say I want us to consider the glory of God. There is none higher than him. He's the only one with a legitimate claim to praise. Uh, but just real quick, I hate dropping you guys in on a text, right? I hated that growing up in church. It's like, yeah, we're in like, I can't think of a book of the Bible. That's crazy. It's like we're in like Judges 7. They just like drop you in straight there instead of like giving you any context of what's going around. Can't believe I just totally blanked. 66 books to choose from. Got nothing. I'm an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, So we've got to actually do a little bit of backtracking to Acts 13 before I can drop in on Acts 14. Uh, but back in Acts 13, the very first few chapters, we see Paul and Barnabas, um, and, and they, are, they begin a missionary journey, and this is actually Paul's first missionary journey. Um, again, starts in Acts chapter 13, and what they do is they immediately set off for this town called Antioch. Um, it's where you see the church's name, like Antioch Free Will Baptist in Minford. I don't know why I just thought of that. But you see church's name, uh, like, or not churches, they go to a city called Antioch, and they begin to preach. And while they're preaching there, um, you'll see this being a, a frequent pattern in the book of Acts, some of the Jews that are there get jealous of the attention that the apostles are receiving. Um, so what they do is they begin to argue, right? Just try to, like, stop them from preaching, argue every point that Paul and Barnabas are making, and they just, just radically oppose the gospel. They oppose the apostles at, at every turn. So Paul and Barnabas, in response to this, in, in chapter 13, verses 46 and 47, what they do is, is they say, because of this rejection, because the Jewish people have rejected us, we are going to go and preach to the Gentiles now, in accordance with God's plan. That he, God talked about doing that in the book of Isaiah, that there would be a light going out to the Gentiles. And he says, well, we're going to do that now. If the Jews are going to reject us, we're going to preach to the non-Jews. Um, so in response to that, the Jewish people in Antioch get super angry, and they incite a mob against Paul and Barnabas, and they run them out of town, right? No doubt threatening to kill them, no doubt probably hurting them physically and drive them out of town with force. So then the apostles go on to another town, right, a, a town called Iconium. Um, and the same thing happens again. They start preaching again, and the Jewish people run them out of town. Uh, again, no doubt threatening them and all that stuff. And then they go to a town called Lystra after that. Um, where there happens to be no synagogue. I'm not saying that they went to Lystra because there were no Jews there, but they go to uh, an essentially only pagan city where no one knows about the Bible, no one knows about the God of the Bible, and that's where they begin to preach, and that's where our text takes place. So keep that in mind. They've been hated right off the bat. Like, it's just kind of funny to me to think about, like, they probably didn't see this coming, 
right off the bat, first missionary journey they've ever been on, ran out of the first two towns, everyone hates them, right? But they did see some small conversion. So then they go to Lystra, and that's where our text begins. Acts 14, verse 8. And while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came, up, or came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. And he was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, Stand up! And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, These men are gods in human form. And they decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus, and that Paul was Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Let's pray. Father, for your glory, soften our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive your word. Holy Spirit, speak through me to give insight into this text that maybe we had never considered. God, let your glory shine through this. Let the glory of the gospel shine through Jesus Christ. God, if there's any unbelievers here, I pray that they would come to know Jesus, come to saving faith of and in Christ, that they would see a glimpse of the glory of God in the gospel, and that their heart would be changed. And God, do the same for believers, that you would, even though you've already saved us, continue to conform us to the image of your Son. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, there are, as always, a ton of different things that we could really consider from that passage. Um, But I'm kind of going to go off the beaten path a little bit, Um, instead of focusing on Paul's sermon, that that short little couple of verses where he says, you know, God made all these things um, and and you ought to worship him and turn from worthless false gods. I'm going to kind of go off the beaten path of that. And and what I really want us to do um, in in line with our sermon series is focus on the humility of Paul and Barnabas, right? It it doesn't jump out at you necessarily right off the rip, um, but I want us to really focus on the humility of them um, because this example is astounding, Um, so, again, just to recap, they go to Lystra, right, and they're preaching there. Why? It's right off the rip. They want to magnify God in preaching his gospel, right, and in, in declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is king of all, and that God has bestowed glory and honor and power to him that likes it, like, which no one has ever seen. And they declare the atonement of Jesus Christ, that no man is good enough to save themselves, that everyone deserves damnation because we've all offended a holy God, but that Jesus Christ has bore our sin and our punishment for our sin in our place and actually suffered God's wrath on the cross for us so that by faith in him, God has no justice to put on us anymore because Jesus has suffered the penalty, right? So they preach the lordship of Christ, the atonement of Christ, and then they preach this free grace 
to those who repent, or to anyone who will repent. Put your faith in Christ. Trust that Jesus has done this for you and be made right with God. God will justify you. He will give you right standing with himself. So they, they're preaching this thing, these things to this crowd. And as they do it, Paul looks and he sees a man who's been crippled from birth and he performs a miracle. All right? But it's really good to note here, and this will be important later, Paul doesn't do anything. Right? Paul is not like a magician or anything like that. This is by the power of God, in the name of Jesus, which means in Jesus' power, Paul performs this miracle. And then what happens? The funniest thing in the world, the people try to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And it makes me laugh because they, like, specifically, the text specifically says they think that Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus, which we would think should be the other way around because Zeus is like the top dog. But just fun fact for you, Hermes is like the spokesperson of all the gods. So since Paul talked the most, they thought he was Hermes. And I don't know if Barnabas was a really regal-looking guy or looked like a king or what. Uh, but they thought he was Zeus, and they attempt to worship them. And what do, we, what do the apostles do? They refuse the worship. Right? The only reason that it went on long enough for them to actually bring bulls and like wreaths of flowers to the city gates to sacrifice was because they had shouted out these men are gods in human form in their own dialect, like their own native tongue that Paul and Barnabas didn't understand. Right? That's the only reason that it got to that point. And I'm sure they're adding like you know two and two together. Okay, they usually sacrifice bulls and put flowers around their necks before they do it. Oh no, right? Like I can just imagine like it dawning on them what exactly is getting ready to happen, and they freak out. Right? Like, they do what a lot of Jews do. It's like a sign of just horror. And they rip their clothes, and they run out in the crowd, and they try to stop it, right? They insist, we are men. We're not gods, right? And, and actually, I like how the ESV worded it. It says, we are men of like nature as you. We're no different than you. Don't worship us. Instead, they redirect their attention to the one who ought to be worshipped. Stop worshiping these worthless gods. Worship him. We didn't do anything. He did it. Right, turn from all this foolish stuff and look to the God who actually empowered the miracle, not us. Look to the one who is actually worthy of exaltation, the one who's actually worthy of praise and not us. Right? And this is a, a great example of the heart of a believer, right? where a believer knows that they ought to make much of God and nothing. I don't mean little of ourselves, nothing of ourselves. Much of God, none of us. But I kind of ask myself this question, and I hope you guys will ask yourself this. Is this what I would do? Would this consistently always be my response whenever someone tried to offer me any kind of praise because of something that I did? Right? Which leads me to a little bit of a bigger question. Why is this attitude to make much of God and nothing of ourselves? Why is this attitude, um, why is this the attitude a follower of Jesus should have whenever someone tries to praise us. Why? Why? What did these apostles know that caused them to respond the way that they did? Why did they freak out? Why? Like, just keep in mind, like, they could bear everyone hating them, right? They don't freak out on any of the crowds um, in the first two towns that they're in, but they absolutely go insane whenever people try to put praise and honor and glory on them. Why? What do they know that maybe we don't know? All right? Let's do it. The first thing that we can say about the apostles is that they desire God to be glorified. Right? Above everything, at any cost, God must receive glory and praise. And what do they do? They don't just con like, consent to that as an idea, like a lot of us are guilty, that, yeah, God deserves to be glorified. But they actually, like, they work really hard to see it happen. 
right? They understand that, like, like we are to be proactive in, in God receiving glory, right? And, and let's think about how can we deduce this just from this passage. They're in Lystra, which some of you might not be seeing what I'm saying. They won't stop on their journey. Like, how many of us, like, if being, like, like someone threatens to kill you and says, like, get out of our town, on to the next one, I suppose, right? Like, Jay-Z, we're just going to keep going to the next town, and then they run us out, onward, right? Like after like multiple death threats and like getting beaten, like, yeah, we're just going to keep going. Like we are undeterred in preaching the gospel, right? Most of us, if someone calls us an idiot on Facebook, like we want to like delete the post about Jesus that we posted, right? Like that's, like that's how, like, that's just a big difference between us and them, I suppose, is they're so consumed with the glory of God that they are undeterred in the fact that people hate them and they keep going. So the fact that they're just in Lystra and won't stop on their journey shows they want God to be glorified. Secondly, they're preaching. They're not just there hanging out among the pagans, like, you mean, like, on, like, the low, trying to tell people about Jesus. Like, Paul, like, where there's no synagogue for him to go preach in, Paul's, like, open air, like, in, like, the market square, town square. Like, you know, who wants to hear the gospel, right? Like, he's just, like, just laying it out there before them. And why, why are they preaching this way? For the glory of God. They want to see people saved. And they know that unless people hear the gospel and believe it and turn from their sin and turn to God, no one will be saved. But they know that whenever people do that, God receives glory because their life begins to be more and more conformed to Jesus. And they begin to worship him and tell more people the gospel. So they're preaching to the glory of God. They're showing God's glory by declaring his mercy to those who will repent. And then thirdly, from this passage, they perform a miracle to display the power of God in Jesus Christ. Right? So, so they do that to establish the validity of the gospel. Why? So that people might see this miracle and believe. Why? Because they want to see God glorified. I hope you see like just a recurring pattern here. I know I'm being really repetitive. They want God's glory. And this made me ask the question, and I hope you guys are asking it. If you're not, I got a mic and you don't, so you're asking the question as far as I'm concerned. Why do they care so much about the glory of God? All right, why do they care so much? Real easy answer. Because God is very much for his own glory. Right? We don't like to, like, this is just really weird for us, because, like, a lot of people think, you know, God must be a narcissist then if he's really into his own glory. Um, no, he's just right for thinking that. Right? Like, if I created this thing, and, like, I want, like, pe- I want people to know that, like, I made this, and then you attribute what I made to AJ. That's not Right? Right? So God's not a narcissist in being for his own glory. He's not a narcissist, narcissist for being very pro himself. It's just right and natural for him to be that way. Right? But what are some examples of God being for his own glory? Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. You will worship nothing but me. All praise, all honor, all everything belong to me and me alone because there is no other God. There is nothing else worth your attention like I am worth. God declares that. First thing of the Ten Commandments, no other gods. I am God alone. I deserve your worship. I deserve your adoration and your affection. Why else? Romans 11.36 says this. For everything comes from him, gifts, and exists by his power, and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Right? So everything exists to bring God praise, including us. Right? We were made to praise God. Everything that we do, the whole world, points to the glory of God. Right? The world is not the glory of God, but it's meant for us to say, if this is great, right? Like I enjoy my wife. She's a gift to me given by God. Right? Food. 
right? I see a lot of you in the crowd. You like food, right? It tastes good. God gave us taste buds, right? All of these things, like, like drink, food, um, relationships that we have, jokes that we hear, the clothing that we have, the beauty of the world around us is meant to display God's glory. It's not his glory itself, but it's made, it's made for us to say, if this is great, and it is, and if this is beautiful, and it is, then how much greater is the one who created it or designed it and then gave it to us? How much greater must he be, right? Because if you make something, you must by necessity be greater than it. I am greater than the chair that I made, if I could make anything with my own hands, but I can't, right? But if this is great, how much greater is the God that made it? And not only that, not only do they know those things, but they know that Jesus Christ died to redeem a people. And we talk about that a little, this a little bit in the men's small group. But they know that Jesus died to redeem a people so that those people would worship and honor God forever. Right? Jesus died for the glory of God. Our salvation is a byproduct of it. He died in order to purchase people so that we would then magnify God with the rest of our lives and on into eternity whenever we die. God is very much about his own glory, and the apostles know that. And this pushed the apostles to live very, very holy lives. What do I mean by that? They put sin to death for the glory of God. All of these things for the glory of God. They put sin to death in their lives. Right? They were willing to take measures necessary to keep themselves from falling into temptation. Right? Not only that, but they would seek God in prayer regularly. Right? We see Peter last week. He's like on top of the roof of the house praying multiple times a day. Um, they go from place to place, person to person, giving a witness for who Jesus is, that he is Lord and he is Savior. They study the scriptures and they're consumed with knowing the Bible. Why? So that they can know how to live for the glory of God and they can know God and glorify him for even more of his characteristics and attributes. And they serve others. Right? These are just things that constitute a holy life that I see from the apostles. And the glory of God was the driving force behind all of this. They were consumed by it. They wanted to see God be praised, is what I mean. And they wanted to see God be praised because they wanted, like, in the fact that the world would see their lives and then be pointed to God. Right? That's really what they wanted to see, like, what they were out for, rather. And considering that the glory of God drove them to live the holy, holy just means set apart for the record. The reason why that they lived that was because they loved God's glory. Which made me think this, and this is just some personal inventory, it's just a little side note. Do you have many good works in your life if you're a Christian? Like just do like a personal inventory. Like are there, thing, are there things in your life? Fruit, all right, that's like the Christian word. Is there any fruit in your life? that would let anyone know or let yourself know that you are indeed a follower of Jesus? Are you putting sin to death or are you wallowing in it? Are you serving other people or are you very self-centered? Are you studying the scriptures or do you not consider the scriptures worth your time and effort to understand? Are you seeking God in prayer or do you not think that he's worth talking to? Right? Um, the reason why I ask that is because if this glory of God is what drove the apostles um, to their good works, then if we don't have any good works, it's probably because we don't view the glory of God as supreme. We don't view the glory of God uh, as anything, really. If we have no good works in our lives and our life hasn't changed much since we've come to faith, then we must think God's glory is something to shrug at, right? It's neither here nor there. It's very trivial. Again, in spite of the fact that God created us for his glory, to glorify him. Um, You know, maybe we really don't believe that showing his greatness is why we were saved, right? And we believe this stupid American lie that we were just saved so we could go to heaven. 
which is not the case. We were saved for the glory of God by becoming more like Christ. But again, I digress. The apostles understand that nothing matters except leading a life that brings God praise. Again, I know I'm repeating myself. I want you guys to get that. They, they knew that. Everything's about bringing God praise so they live exemplary lives full of good works because they deeply love the Lord and they knew God's love for him and they love him back. And in the course of living this way, they performed a miracle and the pagans tried to worship them for it. Now, this is something that didn't quite hit me um, until about Thursday uh, when I was studying for this. Think about the temptation that Paul and Barnabas would have experienced to accept this praise. Think about that for a second. Everyone else has hated them. They've been run out of town everywhere else. And these people think they're gods. Think about that. Like, like legit, like, there are some days where, like, if I'm feeling real low and I think, like, everyone's against me and someone were to, like, offer me that, I'd be like, where's my wreath, man? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, where's, like, my laurel to wear around my head or whatever? Um, But just consider that just for a second. They would have been legitimately tempted to say, man, like, we could just live here for the rest of our lives in comfort because these people really think that we're something. Which leads me to a big question. How often do we want our ego stroked? Right, how often do we want people to, to think so highly of us? How often do we want people to think that we're great? A real question, big one. How often do we do good things, not because we want to honor God, but because we want people to see how great that we are? That's kind of, we're getting into the meat of what I really wanted to get at this evening. How, what are our motives for the things that we do? Do we want our ego stroked and to feel better about ourselves and for other people to exalt us and say, you're just such a good guy? Or do we do it because we love the Lord and we want to see his name exalted? Right? Again, we, we spent a little bit of time a few minutes ago looking at how God is very much for his own glory. But I would argue this, just as much as God is for his own glory, man is for man's own glory as well. Right? Man, in, his, in our natural state, the sinful nature that we're born into, we love praise. Do we not? Like, we create, think, like, we have Facebook, right? Like, like, people are like Facebook famous, and that's like all they do, right? We crave people's praise, right? We crave their applause, and we'll do almost anything so that people will think highly of us, right? That we're so intelligent, or we have such a good heart, or we're so kind, or we're so generous, or whatever it is, right? We'll do almost anything to make people think well of us. And if you think about it, look at our culture. Everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants the world to know how good they are at something. An instrument, acting, um, again, being generous, generosity, whatever it is. Their intelligence, everyone wants everyone else to know how good that they actually are. But here's something that I found really interesting. We are so wicked, right? Human beings are so wicked. Even Christians at times do this. That we will take good, godly things, commands that God actually gives us, things that we're supposed to do, and we will, with our wicked hearts, twist them and turn them around and do them with a heart's desire to be seen and told that you are such a good person for what you just did. And we love it. We will take a good thing and make it sin because we did it under the pretenses of our own glory. Like, we are so corrupt that we can take God's command to feed the hungry and make it sin. Think about that for a second. If our heart is, if our motive is not pure, 
that whatever we're doing is for the glory of God, then we can, there's everything that you do, even if it's in accordance with what God commands, because your heart is not right. Because remember, we talked about in the very beginning, God wants your heart. And obedience isn't really obedience unless it's done for his glory. We can take external obedience, and it actually is sin, because our motivation is ungodly, because we want to be praised. And we do this, right, as a whole, right, I'm talking about people in general, we do this because we want people to believe that we're great, right? And and for the record, most people in America or the West in general think that people are basically good, which is really unbiblical, really stupid. Anyway, um, but we do, we have this mentality because we want people to believe that we're great, and think about this, if, if, and I think that we, in our hearts, like we kind of feel this way. If we can get enough people to praise us and call us good, then we can begin to ignore our sin. If you're told day in and day out because you're doing all these good works or whatever, so people see you and praise you, and, and you're being told constantly how kind you are and how good you are and how generous you are, then you can really ignore your own sin. You can ignore the fact that you watch porn because you fed a homeless person and someone told you how good you were. You'd ignore the fact that you spoke hatefully to your wife because someone saw you speak a kind word to a stranger in the store, right? You can, you can brush under the rug the fact that you're really a greedy jerk because you gave a dollar to a homeless person, right? As long as people are praising you for what you do, you can ignore your own sin. For the record, as long as you're praising you for what you do, you can ignore your own sin, Right, and this was just the thought. This is was just I was on Facebook taking a break from studying for this. If you don't believe me that we really want to ignore our own sin because we receive praise from other people, why do you think we live in a culture where people film themselves giving money to homeless people? You ever see those Facebook things? You'll never believe what this person did for this homeless guy, right? It's always like clickbait stuff, and you always click on it because if you're a loser like me, what else are you going to do? It's Saturday, but like, it's always what it is. It's people film themselves being good. Why? Read the comments, man. Oh, you're such an inspiration. You make $50,000 a year and you gave five bucks to a homeless guy. Oh, what a heart you have on you, right? And you know that this person did this to stroke their own ego, right? We want glory. We really do. We want glory. We want praise. We want honor. When, in fact, God alone is the only one who actually deserves it. And why is that? Because we're proud, And I would make the argument that pride is actually the root of all sin. That God would say, do this, and we in our pride beat our chest and say, I will not. He says, life is meant to be lived for my glory. And I say, no, it's mine. For my glory, not yours. Pride is at the root of all sin. Genesis 3 really lays it out with the first sin ever, with Adam and Eve and the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Like, we desire to be like God in ways reserved only for God. That he has actually reserved for himself. He set the boundary. Glory and praise belong to him. Right, if you're reformed, soli deo gloria, right? And we overstep that boundary and say, I want it for myself. And that is God's primary grievance against mankind. Read Romans chapter 1. We won't worship him. We won't live for his glory alone, but instead we worship the things that he's created, namely ourselves, and seek our own praise and our own glory. Or maybe you're one of the weird people that doesn't live for your own praise, but you live for someone else's, like your children's or your spouse's. You want to see them glorified. You want to see them made great instead of the Lord. But that's not what the apostles did in our passage, is it? They battled the temptation to receive praise and glory. And how did they do it? They did it with the truth of the gospel. Right? We've got to kind of read in between the lines on this. Verse 15, they said, what are you doing? We are merely human beings. 
ESV, we are men with a like nature as yours. I think in saying that, Paul is saying, we are not worthy of praise. We are so far away from being God that it sickens us that you would say anything good about us because only God alone deserves that kind of reverence. I really think that's what they're getting at whenever they say we are men of like nature as yourselves. And the apostles showed their horror, right? They, phys- like they, they, they like, uh, visibly displayed it. They tore their clothing and they ran into the crowd. Why? Because they knew what they were. They knew what they were. And because of that, they were appalled that anyone would think highly enough of them to praise them. And that should be the Christian's attitude about themselves. Because we know what we are. Right? Like AA says, like, step one is like admitting you got a problem. Step one to becoming a Christian. If you are a Christian, is you admit you're a sinner. That at your core, this is what you really are. This is the nature that you were born with, and this is the nature that you fight with for the rest of your life. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you still fight against the fact that you're a sinner, right? That doctrine we all love, simultaneously justified, made right in the eyes of God, and still a sinner. This is His grace to us, that He would save us and keep us, even though we're still sinners. But we know what we are. We are sinners. We are wholly unlike God. We are fallen. We are broken. We are failures. On our best day, we still sin in some way. Even if it's not visible, we sin with our thoughts. Right? You, you check out that girl for a second too long. You, you, you get hateful with someone in your own mind, right? Because a lot of us don't have enough guts to actually say something to anyone. But we think it in our heads. We think about revenge. Um, we'd be lazy at work, right? Things like that. We fail morally, and we know that that is not just failure, right? I didn't just miss the mark necessarily, but I rebelled against God in that moment. I saw his command. I said, screw him. I want to do what I want to do. I know I ought not, but I will do it anyway. We know that we are rebels who deserve nothing but hell. We have sinned against the God who is, like Paul said, he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them and everything that we have. He's given us food and he's given us joy in our hearts. He's given us everything that we have. And we have spat in his face and said, I will live for myself on my own terms, doing what I want to do. And that is the worst thing that we could possibly do. And we know because of that, we deserve hell. We deserve to burn for eternity for that. The punishment truly does fit the crime in hell. The worst sin imaginable, the worst crime against God imaginable, deserves the worst punishment imaginable. But we also know this, that we have received grace, unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to be saved. (laughs) It's actually in spite of our own wickedness that God saved us. We could not be obedient enough for God to save us. By works of the law, no man has ever been justified before God, is what Paul says. We could never love him enough. First, the the, the greatest commandment, Jesus says, is love God with your mind, with your heart, with everything that you have. We can't do that. Even on our best day, we will still fail. But God has decided to show us grace in Jesus Christ. That Jesus actually could. Jesus actually did. He lived a perfect life that we can't live. He never sinned. And then he offered himself up as the sacrifice for sin in place of men who deserve to go to hell. He paid what we owed. And then he gives us his own righteousness to be judged by. And we know that it didn't come as a result of how good that we are. It came as a result of how good that God is. How merciful that God is. 
At the core, being a Christian is, I suck and I recognize how wicked that I am, but God, will you please be merciful to me? I believe that Jesus has done all these things for me. And it's not by my goodness, but it's by your grace. And then we know this, right? Part two, right? The Christian life as we live. We know that God, in his wisdom and grace, has decided to use us as instruments. We know that still, the good things that we do still aren't really us doing them. That we are instruments in the hands of God to do the work and will that he saved us for. We know this intrinsically. Romans 7, right? I just throw this out there. Read Romans 7 when you get home. We know that there is nothing good in us except for God who is working in us. That we are just instruments in his hand and that is all. So any good that we do is a complete product of God's goodness working in us. Philippians 2.13, not 4.13, 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. On our own, we don't even have the desire to do the good works that people sometimes try to praise us for. God has to give us the desire, let alone the power to actually follow through and obey them to God's glory. He's the one who works all of it. So in light of that, God alone is to be praised for the good that we do. We know that. Why? Because we know we're sinners. So Paul and Barnabas understood this. That they didn't do the miracle, God did it. And that God just used Paul as an instrument to display God's own glory. Paul and Barnabas deserved no worship because of their work. It was the work of God through them, right? Uh, A way to remember this, do you praise the carpenter for the house? Or do you praise the saw and the hammer for the house? Right? Who gets, who gets the honor whenever you see how beautiful the house is? You say, man, what, these saws really just knocked it out of the park. No, it was the carpenter that made the house. We praise the carpenter, not the saw and hammer. Same way, you praise God, not the instruments that he uses. All that to say, we have to cultivate a God-honoring humility. Both as individuals, right, and as a congregation. Just a, a thought, why do you study the Bible? This one hurts me. Generally, I like people to think that I'm smart. And I want people to, 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 to say something to me, like, oh, man, you know so much. And I really don't. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I'll point you to some preachers that are way better than me. Like, you know so much, and you are just so dedicated to studying the Bible. Or like, well, like, seriously, like that. so that, that's just for me. I know I'm not the only one in here that deals with that, right? But just think, like, why do you do what you do? So as individuals, we need to cultivate a God-honoring humility. We need to have pure motivations. And as a congregation, too, we need that. Right? I don't want us to have cookouts in the East End and to have all this stuff that we, we try to reach out for the community so that people can say, revolution is just a group of great people. Right? That should not be why, why we do what we want to do. It should be the glory of God in all things, not saying we're better than church B down the street. But we want to see God glorified in what we do, right? We are nothing, and Revolution Church is nothing. So anytime people see what we do, if they say anything to us, or in general, we must redirect them to the God who has made all of it happen, right? We have to, like Paul and Barnabas, continually push the spotlight off of us and tell people of the one true God who actually deserves their praise. This is why Jesus says, like, whenever you do good works, right, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't do this out in the marketplace, right? Don't blow trumpets because you're giving money to people. Do things in secret. Why? Because you just want to see God glorified in what you're doing. Take the spotlight off yourself. 
And just a thought, if we're willing to bask in the praise of men and do things for the praise of men, then we are nothing but idolaters of self. We worship ourselves. So what is the motive for your action? God's glory alone or your glory? Do you recognize that you're merely a human being of like nature as everyone else? Or are you delusional and think you actually deserve praise? And I say that just as a, a warning. Someone told me this a long time ago when I was having a really awful, arrogant streak. They said, Dave, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the humble and those who are about to be. Why do I say that? That's actually biblical. Proverbs and James will say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We have to acknowledge that we're sinners in order to be saved. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. James says, therefore, humble yourselves before God. He will lift you up. So how do we live in true humility? That becomes the real question then, doesn't it? How do we really live in true humility? Right? This is the application part of the sermon, I suppose. Right? Real, and when I say true humility, I mean this. Right? Because it's real easy for us to like do something and someone say, oh man, you're really dedicated to studying the Bible. Are you really good? No, it's really the Lord working in me, but in secretly you're like, yeah. like right? Like, it's really easy to pay lip service to humility. And your heart still be just ridiculously proud and arrogant. So how are we going to actually live with true humility? A couple things before we actually get into what I want to say. It's not going to happen overnight. And it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. Right? So this is going to be something that we're consciously having to cultivate all the time. So just throwing that out there. This isn't like a one and done. And these aren't magic bullets either. Right? But I'm getting ready to tell you, this is like meditation and stuff on these things. These aren't silver bullets. Gotcha. I'm not going to be arrogant anymore. I'm not going to seek my own glory. So God often does not change our hearts overnight. Just throwing that out to you. But I think two things are key to living in true humility. One, to constantly remind ourselves through the scriptures of what sinners that we are. That whenever the the God of the Bible talks about unrighteousness and unrighteous people, that whenever we see the Pharisees in the New Testament, whenever we see Paul or anyone in their letters rebuking people, that we would say, like we would identify with that and say like, yeah, that's that's actually me because I'm still screwing up in various areas of my life. Right? So the first thing was remind ourselves that we are sinners. And in that, how badly that we depend upon God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ because it's not our goodness that's going to save us. If it's 99% Jesus and 1% goodness on our part, we're going to hell. Because you will screw up the 1%. Right? Like, I am the 1%. Just a joke of the day. Right? That's how badly that we depend upon the grace of God, though. We have to reiterate that to reiterate that to ourselves. And the second thing is this, and this is the big one, and this is the last point that I'm going to make. We're going to look at some scripture. Is that we also have to meditate upon and be consumed with the Lord Jesus, right? Desiring to be exactly like him in every way possible, right? And just consider this, and here's what I mean by that. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, right? The word made flesh. He lived and he died and he resurrected not for his own glory, not for his own glory. He did all of this for the glory of God the Father. We're going to read some scripture. John 12, 28, Jesus prays. He says, Father, bring glory to your name. And then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. So God is very much for his own glory. 
And Jesus knew that. And he said, Father, I want to see you glorified in all things. He says, I oh, I am. And I, and I will make sure that I continue to be. And Jesus desired it. John 13, 31. As soon as Judas left the room, this is the last supper scene. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. And God will be glorified because of him. Even Jesus entering into his own glory via his death and resurrection, he said, God will be glorified because of this. That's why he wanted to do it so badly. John 17, 1 through 5. After saying all these things, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. And in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This is the glory of God in Jesus. The meekness and humility of Christ put the glory of God on display in all things. This is our supreme example of humility is Jesus Consider this, the only man, right, the God-man, Jesus, the only man who had a right to live for his own glory, being the second member of the Trinity, being God in the flesh, he had a total right to glory. He still lived in humility, right? He still lived in humility. Jesus Christ sought the glory of God in everything that he did, in every good work, in every word, in every thought. Jesus was consumed with his Father's glory. And Jesus loved the glory of the Father so much that he died so that we would come to glorify the Father. He was consumed with it. And if that is how much that Jesus desired God to be praised, the only one who actually was deserving of praise himself, then how much more should we seek to glorify God alone in the things that we do? How much more? How much more should we consider ourselves as mere instruments of God's glory and evidences of God's power and grace? Jesus Christ clothed himself in humility and good works out of love for God's glory. He had pure motives. He's the only person that ever lived with completely pure motives. He loved the Father. May his perfect example change our hearts to reflect his heart and purify our motives as well. Let's pray. Father, you are supremely glorious. God, please use the truth of your gospel, of your glory displayed in Jesus Christ's humility, and the fact that he loved you enough to die for us. And then as a byproduct of his love for you, he loves us. God, I pray that that would break through the heart of an unbeliever here this evening. Father, I pray that that truth would break through the hearts of the people that you've already saved and cause us to live in a way that just gives evidence 
how great that you are. God, help us to kill the sin in our lives. Help us to do the good works that you command us to do. Help us to be students of scripture and, and, and just masters of prayer because we just want to be like Christ, because we want to know you deeper, because we, we just relish in your glory, and we want to live lives that emulate your Son, to bring you more glory. Purify us and make us like your Son. Purify our motives. Give us the heart change that only your Holy Spirit can give. Make us more like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.